I'm Jeremy Brock, and on behalf of um, BAFTA, the JJ Charitable Trust, and Lucy Gard, welcome to the third in our quartet of lectures for this year. Tonight's speaker is one of America's foremost writer-directors, a visionary talent with a God-given gift for humanizing complex narrative. These credits as a screenwriter and director include Pariah, Bessie, and her latest film, Mudbound. Anyone who's seen Mudbound will be left reeling by its brutal classicism, its unwavering veracity, and its sheer humanity. Uh, vision is a word uh, overused, abstruse, and often misused, but the vision in this film is extraordinary. The control of tone, content, and theme speaks of a huge and fierce emotional intelligence at work. So it's with great pride that we welcome Dee to these lectures. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy what I know will be a wonderful evening. Thank you. So, so first of all, thanks to the JJ Charitable Trust, and thanks to BAFTA for having me, and thanks to all of you guys for wanting to listen. <laughs> um, I have to say, standing here in the British Museum, it feels like a huge momentous occasion, so I tried to psych myself out by pretending it wasn't a big deal on the way over. But um, standing in the midst of all these antiquities, you know, it didn't work. <laughs> so um, I, sh I should let you know right away that I have more questions than I have answers. So rather than talking on a particular theme, I thought I'd share with you some of the questions that I asked myself in writing and some of the ways in which I interrogate the material. Um, yeah. So the first is, um, we go to the first slide, saying what they don't mean. And so basically, people in real life rarely say exactly what's on their mind or exactly what they feel. And they do this for a number of reasons, right? So either they're protecting the self or they're protecting the other person. And so it's really weird in cinema when people give these full-on, heartfelt, emotional monologues, you know, that are expositional and saying exactly what they think because that's not really how it goes in life. And so um, I had this great writing professor. His name was Mick Casal. And so his idea was this thing called the triple bumper theory. And this was the idea that whatever someone really feels like back off of it three times, and then you'll get to the thing that maybe should be on the page, right? So for example, right, so a love scene, you know, girl meets girl, right? So they're, they're in love. So, you know, the thing that is meant is, I love you, right? But you wouldn't say that, right? Because there's a risk, you might be rejected. So maybe you back it off once and it's, I love your sweater, <laughs> right? <laughs> but even that feels too risky, so you could back it off again and say, where'd you buy that sweater, <laughs> you know? And then if you want, you could back it off again and say, I heard there's a sale at Topshop on sweaters. You know, so, but, and then as a director, the subtext of that, I hear there's a sale at Topshop is really, I love you, you know? And then that comes across in the scene. The audience is smart. The audience gets it. So, so as a writer, you know, you don't want to put it ex exactly on the page that way. So there's that buffer there. Um, so for you, the writer, you know, when you're writing dialogue, there are no consequences, right? And so there's a temptation for your characters to be these, this avatar, this kind of courageous defender that goes off and says the things that you want to say. But just, you know, keeping in mind that for the character, there are consequences, there's very real consequences, and they would protect themselves from that. So rather than let characters be your champion, you have to, like, 
understand the consequences that they're in and kind of protect them, like with the dialogue. So this is a scene uh, from Pariah where Arthur, uh, Lique's father, Lique, are kind of dancing around the truth. So the first part of the scene is like this kind of confrontation, you know? So we see these characters constantly kind of advancing and retreating from each other. So in the first part is a confrontation, Lique is confronting her father who's obviously having an affair, you know, but she can't quite prick him with it, you know? He kind of bats her away and says, why are you questioning me? So then the scene turns, right? And so then it's Arthur's turn to advance. Oh, your mom wants me to ask you, so he tiptoes up to the line, you know, and he really wants to ask about her sexuality. And then he retreats, you know, and doesn't do it. And then in the end, Alike goes back again, and like she advances to the line. And, you know, and so going to the triple bumper theory, for example, right, in the beginning of the scene, where he throws away the plate. You know, Alike's, I mean, Alike's not that concerned about her mother's, you know, um, Tupperware. I mean, she's more concerned about the marriage. So it's like, Dad, you're throwing away the plate. It's more like, Dad, you're throwing away us. Or, Dad, you're throwing away the marriage. Or, Dad, you're throwing away the relationship. You know, don't you want the relationship? And so that's an example of like an object kind of standing in for like the real thing that the character wants to talk about. And um, you know, when we were talking about consequences earlier, so people say things or don't say things either because they want to avoid something or because they want something to happen. And so this scene is this dance of avoidance, right? And so when you're writing, you're asking like, well, what are your characters avoiding? And so for the father, Arthur, he knows his daughter is gay, but he's avoiding kind of like the direct knowledge of that because to him, that means things have to change. And so Arthur's main drive when I was directing is to maintain the status quo. So he wants to not know so things can stay the same. And with Alike, right, she um, doesn't want to know that her father's cheating, although she knows he's cheating. Why, like what are the consequences? Because the consequences of that knowledge means that she has to hurt her mother. Because if she knows and she has to say something to her mother. And so she's like avoiding, you know, hurting her mother. And so that's the kind of, that's part of the dance in that scene. And so, you know, in the end, you know, there's this kind of like, consummation of this, they're, they're, they agree to keep each other's secrets, right? The sip of beer becomes this kind of like consummation of we're both not going to say, you know, the subversive thing that happens. And, um, and, and so all of that as a director, you're working into the plot and also in blocking. So like when we go into the third part of the scene where the father tries to kind of confront once more, I have them facing away from each other because sometimes it's easier to say things you're not looking at someone. So it's just like something to think about as, you know, you're writing and dealing with the truth and avoidance and all that good stuff. Um, yeah, that. All right, so the next thing is uh, narrative lyricism. And so this is about, you know, separating your voice as a writer from the voice as a character. And so I think for like first time filmmakers, even second time filmmakers, there's a tendency to like make your character an artist or a writer. I did it. I know I did. <laughs> and, and, you know, why do people do that? They do that because then the character is an even better vessel for your like, you know, writerly, you know, poetic kind of things that you want to say but it kind of goes back to the first point about not making the character an avatar for your voice. But if your character does have an artistic voice, if there is a lyricism to their language, like how do you separate it out? How do you make sure that this poem is coming from them or this thought is coming from them and not just coming from you? Like how do you translate it into the character's kind of terms? And um, I would say that in blending your voice with the character's voice, you know, be mindful. Like, like, what is your character's like scope of experiences? Like, if you're a 40-year-old screenwriter who's traveled the world 
and you're writing a 17-year-old woman who's never left Brooklyn, you know, then automatically you have to be careful of your references, even in lyrics. Like, you, you can't reference things that they wouldn't seen, or and even in terms of, like, fears, like the thing that you fear, like aging or loneliness or death, may not be the thing that your characters fear. So when you're crafting poetry for them or crafting things for them, like, what is it that they're afraid of? What is it that they desire? And try not to transpone your own desires onto your characters. Um, and I would also say, like, just figuring out, like, your characters, like, reference points of the world. Like, you know, people's worlds tend to be, I think, routine and small in a way. And so how they, com how they compose metaphors about their life is based on things that they've seen or experienced. And so for Priya, we had like one day of pickups. We had to shoot the rooftop scene between Alika and her father because it was snowing the first, time, the first time we tried to shoot it. So we had to come back and get it when it wasn't snowing. And it was the same physical location as where we shot the classroom location. So, and actually, I didn't even want to write this poem when we were in the pr pr production of it because I felt like, oh, it'll be corny. This will be yet another film where the protagonist is an artist and delivers this poem in the end, and I don't want to do it. And my editor, Michael, commits and was like, oh, just like write something. Like, just write it, record it. If you hate it, we won't use it. I wrote this poem on a napkin at a Starbucks, and then we, you know, popped down and shot it. And uh, I'm glad we did. But this is the thing I was struggling with and like afraid of was about what was my voice, what was Alike's voice, and so <clears throat> so that always chokes me up. So it's probably a little more my voice than Alike's voice. But um, <laughs> but that's that's an example. And um, I would say, you know. Also between characters, each character has their own separate vocabulary. Even people who live in the same household, even people who are best friends, even people of the same you know, nationality, like people have their own kind of favorite words and things that they reuse. And um, so even when characters are in a similar milieu or similar circumstances, it's important to kind of separate their voice from each other. Even between like Florence and Hap, there's like a, different in, a difference in how they use language. Like hers is like a little more oldie, like, you know, like almost like from the Bible, it's like biblical the way she speaks, you know, and it's like a little crisper, you know. So, you know, imagine that, Flar that Florence comes from a different mother and father than Hap comes from. So idioms, sayings, things they believe will be different even though they're now joined in the same household. Um, so the stupid metaphor I wrote for this was um, nobody, you know, even though it might maybe the same cuisine, like nobody cooks their pot of beans the same way, you know. So it's kind of like Florence, the way Florence cooks it, it's gonna be different from than the way Hap cooks it, even though it's the same recipe. So there's that. Um, yeah, yeah. And then also voiceover, you know, I think can reveal a character's inner life. Like that's when it's like most interesting, and you know, when it's not about what's literally happening on the screen, when it's more philosophical, when it's about how they feel, when it's the thing that they won't say to someone else. And um, the inner monologue, yeah, it's like the thing they would never say to others. And so for this film, for Mudbound, we actually cut a lot of the things that we recorded because it was too just kind of expo expositional on what was happening. And um, so, yeah. And so I made that point to say, so in Hap's monologue, there's like a bitterness, not a bitterness, but there's a fatigue, there's like a cynicism, there's like a kind of doubt about this endeavor that he would never express to, to his wife, to his sons. In front of them, he's relentless, he's optimistic, we're gonna make it, we're gonna make it, but in his mind, he can be, what good is a deed, you know? So it, it's just a, a character relevatory thing where he's keeping up this front for his family, but inside, he feels that he's rolling a rock uphill. Um, so then we'll go to the last group, which is look at me. <laughs> So this is about spectacle. 
And so, you know, Aristotle kind of lists spectacle as like the least important of the six elements of drama. And I think that spectacle, you know, sometimes is misused, you know, in terms of like, you know, standing in for a lack of feeling or standing in for lack of character development. But I think all the best things start with spectacle. Like, like Romeo and Juliet starts with a murder, actually. So I, I like spectacle. And I think when used smartly, you can actually use it to reveal character, right? And spectacle so then becomes useful for introductions and for turning points. So when we're first meeting a character or when the character is becoming something else or changing to something new. So it's a way to kind of like combine, you know, this extraordinary kind of sight and sound with a, a, a turning point inside someone's life. So then the spec spectacle becomes meaningful and we get like an external visualizations of this person's kind of mind change or we get an external visualization of someone's like personality. Um, so to that point, the um, opening sequence of Pariah. The opening music you hear in watching this film is my neck, my back, my pussy, and my crack. So that's like audio, that's auditorily shocking, you know. It's like spectacle in a way. It's like, oh my God, like what are we in for? And so, but it's not just shock for shock value's sake. It's introducing Alike as someone who's not comfortable in this hypersexualized environment. You know, she's a chameleon and a loner. So by the end of the scene, like she obviously wants to be in this place because we've watched her get here, but then she's kind of like both attracted and repulsed by, you know, the sexuality on display. And so in the opening scene, without her saying, you know, more than a sentence, we get that she's like, you know, a chameleon, she's a loner. She's someone who is sexual but not yet comfortable in her sexuality. Um, and so then the next thing is um, use of spectacle as like a turning point. Bessie's kind of gone from like singer to folk hero. You know, for her, this is like an unintentional transition. She's not trying to be their hero, but her music becomes um, freeing. Her music becomes a sermon. Her music, you know, not only she's preaching to women about liberating their sexuality, but she's also, you know, showing activism, like autonomy, like the show did not get shut down, they didn't burn the tent, this kind of courage in the face to fear. And so this is a good use of spectacle, like yay, it's, you know, a fun dance number and there's music and singing, but the bigger thing that's happening is that Bessie's now elevated from like, you know, singer to hero. So that's all I have, guys. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Um, I wanted to talk about catharsis in a way in terms of it's something that runs through all three of your features, through the characters, all of them with Pariah, it's a girl navigating her way through a creative talents and sexuality, with Bessie through her own demons to fame, and in Mudbound you see it through everyone's narratives. In terms of being a writer and the idea of catharsis, how much do you give more of yourself than you get back from it? Yeah, I would say, I think I, I probably get more catharsis out of it than the characters. Is that, is, is that the question? Yeah. Or for the characters or for myself? But in both ways, but yeah, for yeah. yourself. I think I definitely, I think like the first thing I told you, like don't make the characters your champion, like okay, I kind of do that anyway, but like I'm, I try to do it in a way that's like realistic and in a way when Oike stands up to her father, you know, and when she tells her mother, you know, I love you. You know, like that was a reflection of like a lot of what I was going through at the moment. It was the things, the conversations I'd had with people or the conversations I wanted to say. And Elike said things for me like that I didn't. So I feel like in that way, through the character's catharsis, like the audience should have an emotional feeling. So it's not just about me, the creator, but the audience. Hopefully there's a catharsis for the audience or the audience 
feels or cries or laughs, you know, that, that's kind of like the ultimate goal. Um, so, yeah. And in terms of, in the films, the subject matters, you don't go in big and wide. It's not trying to tackle a huge experience. And through kind of trying to tackle it on something collective, you go very personal. You've mm -hmm. managed to tackle race and gender and sexuality. And are you very conscious that you want to write stories about human relationships and those narratives and the way people communicate with each other rather than making it issue-based? Yeah, I think I'm interested in like people interrogating the self, like people's kind of like either obliviousness to their selfhood or questioning of their selfhood, like, you know, characters who are lonely or feel lonely or isolated or feel isolated. I think I'm drawn to that thematically and like, you know, a journalist like raised it to me. I hadn't, you know, I guess it's all like subconsciously happening, but I like a lot of my like family relationships tend to be unsafe, you know, or the friendships tend to be tense, you know. And so I think that probably comes across, and those are the kind of themes I'm kind of drawn to. So in Pariah, Lara's her best friend, but Lara's tugging her to be something that she's not. So there's a tension, and then there's the other tension of Lara being in love with her. And then in Bessie, you know, you know that scene like Bessie just wants her sister to be proud of her, to really be happy for her, but her sister feels like she just always needs something from her. So, you know, and like when Bessie, you know, when I was researching her biography, like I was most taken by the fact that when she went home is when she got stabbed, you know? Mm -hmm. If she had just stayed on the road, you know, she would have been fine. And then in Mudbound, you know, like Ron Zell, you know, doesn't want to go back home and can never go back home in a way, you know, from the father, like, I didn't know you smoked, you know, it's so like, I, I, I'm always kind of drawn to that kind of inability to go back home and when home is not safe or family relationships, I think that's the thing I'm always exploring and each of those characters from like Alike to Bessie to uh, like Ronzel and, the, and even like the McCallans, like, like that, all those characters, they're kind of like questioning themselves and, and, and how, you know, the world, how, how they're affecting the world around them or how they feel they're not able to affect the world around them. And then in, in that kind of vein of maybe questioning yourself, if you go back to Pariah, it initially started off as a 30-minute short film. Mm -hmm. Did you write it originally as a short, or did you write it as a feature? So Pariah, I wrote as a feature. I wrote it as, a, as like a 140-page feature. It was before I knew any better that feature strips shouldn't be 140 pages. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but it was that, and I had her going to college and like going to frat parties. It was like awful. So it started as this like bloated draft of a script, and then I realized that to tell it well, I could only tell that part of her experience, that kind of high school moment over the course of a couple of months, versus trying to like span so much time with this character's awareness because I had her un like learning and unlearning, making mistakes over and again. And while repetition, I think, happens in life, I think we make the mistakes over and over until we don't. You know, in in cinema or in drama, you know, you have to kind of find, you have to kind of illustrate that, you know, with a brevity of kind of like experiences or like a brevity of moments. And so, um, so Pariah started as a feature and then I needed a thesis to graduate from NYU and I was obsessed with this. I couldn't think of anything else. So I shot the first act as a short film and then the short, and which by the way was against all the rules. They said, you know, don't make a half hour short film. It'll never get programmed because then that means you got to be as good as three films, you know, to even like get considered. But I did anyway. And the great thing is like they would always program us last. So we would be like either first or last in the program because it was so long. But you know, the short then kind of made the way to raise funds for the feature film. So I'd written this feature script, just bloated, you know, workshop it at the Sundance Labs, and then we shot the feature, and then we used the short to kind of finance the feature as became our calling card. And you know, part of that short, do they include, do you include parts of the short in the feature then? 
So we reused the bus sequence because getting MTA bus from New York City is like hell. And so it was like, there's no way we're going to rent another bus. So we reused the bus scene. We reused some of the club scenes. So it was extremely like low, low budget. We shot Fry for like four hundred something thousand dollars, and we never had all that money in the bank at the same time. And so we we totally like reused you know some of the short that we could, but we had recast. So for the father, and went with Charles Parnell versus the short was like Wendell Pierce and like the mother. So we 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 like recast the parents completely, but I wanted to keep the girls the same. So we use what we could, but we use we, we mostly reshot it. And then there was obviously a lot of critical success for Pariah did well. You managed to then move on to Bessie. So you've gone on for a completely original screenplay mm -hmm. to then autobiographical. Was Bessie's story something you always had in mind? Did you always want to tell Bessie Smith's story or how did that come about? It wasn't so. Pariah is 2011 and then Bessie is like 2015. Mm -hmm. So in that four year gap. I was like writing many things that didn't get produced. So when um, Focus acquired Pariah, they'd give me a blind script deal to write a crime thriller. And so I'd wanted to do next this kind of crime thriller about this detective based in Memphis. And she was like a lesbian detective. And you know, so Focus said, okay, this script is too small for us, but if you can find the money, we'll give it back to you. And so, they, so we then found these independent investors and said, okay, we'll make this if you cast it in a way that makes sense for the foreign sales value equation. And so, you know, of course, none of the people that I want to cast like fit the foreign sales value equation. And then the two people who did fit the foreign sales value equation, the one I went out to said, oh, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't want to be a lesbian. So it was just interesting. So it was, and so that was like two years of a film not happening. So then that's 2011 to 2013. And then, you know, I also had written, um, a spec pilot for uh, the spec pilot about Nashville. Like wanted to tell the story about my my hometown. So I'm shopping mm -hmm. the spec script around. You know, I want to tell the story about Nashville. And everyone's like, you know, my my agent's like, no one wants a story about Nashville. And then ABC, <laughs> like six months later, comes out. There's like a fucking series called Nashville. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, so that's like then a year of like yeah. walking around with something that's not working. But in the course of that, this this little spec script had gotten all around town. Everybody was saying it's great, it's great, it's great. We don't want to do it. And so, but um, HBO had it because mm -hmm. I'd pitched it to them like twice. And so you know they had it. And they said, well, do you want to like we've had the script, we got it from another studio. It's called Bessie. Do you want to, like, we're looking for someone to do, like, a rewrite on it. And, like, would you be interested? And I was like, Bessie Smith, like, queer woman from Tennessee? Like, hell yeah, I want to write this script, you know? And I wanted to rewrite it if I could make her queer, if I could talk about Ma Rainey, mm -hmm. if I could talk about, you know, how the blues women sexually and economically empowered other women. And so that was, again, like, my reason to come on so I could inject my own kind of agenda into the material. So I rewrote the script, and another director was originally attached, but I rewrote it so specifically and so weirdly. They were just like, well, do you, like no one else can direct this. Do you want to direct this? <laughs> and so, of course, I was like, yeah, so evil plan pays off. So, um, <laughs> so, so then that's how 2015 I came to direct Bessie. And then, um, yeah, so I forgot the question, but that's how. <laughs> it was there somewhere. But that's so, how that came to be, yeah. yeah. In, and then <laughs> when you're writing, obviously, from 2009 to 2015, you've been writing multiple things. Mm -hmm. How, you know, I just want to get down to the nitty gritty of kind of you at home writing. How are you focusing on something different every single day? You're like, actually, I'm going to go to that TV show today, I'm going to go to that film today. This one I focus on all, is it project by project? And there's a research method to it, or how does your mind work when it comes to the actual sitting at the desk? It's kind of project by project. So for the spec TV pilot I was writing, like I, I was writing that while we're in the edit of Pariah, you know, like I was like, this is burning, simmering, I did like, I gotta get this out. So I was like writing, I wrote that pilot in like two weeks, you know, so I was like writing that while we're cutting. 
And then for um, Bessie, it was a lot of research. It was daunting because this is someone's life and it's actual facts. Mm. So facts are harder to work with because you have to like, you know, be, be accurate. So it, it, I, I researched much more, of course, for that than I would. And for Bessie, there's not a lot of visual record other than promotional photos. And there's one video clip of her. So I was really trying to get a sense of her as a character. And so I ended up finding my way, in, my way in to her through her music. So I figured the best way to know an artist is to like listen closely to their art. Mm. So I was listening very closely to her work. And I wanted to not just play the hits, not just Pigfoot and a bottle of beer, but I wanted the songs that weren't hits, but the songs that maybe got deeply into her psyche. So like, for example, we opened the film with Young Women's Blues. Mm. And so it's a declaration of self, like I'm, you know, I'm not going to back down. I'm beautiful. I'm, I'm strong even though the character may not quite believe that. So I wanted to open the film with that song because it's this kind of statement of like the desired self, you know, that's not the real self. And even to preach in the blues, like I chose that song because again, it's about this like, she's talking, you know, about like sexuality in this kind of like, you know, feminist way, you know, before there's really a name for that. And so, you know, I, wanted, I found my way into Bessie's character through her music. So like, okay, she's about women, she's mm -hmm. about, you know, she's depressed, you know, and so I'm tr there's, a, there's other songs like Spider-Man's Blues, like that I didn't put in there, but I wanted to choose my way into her characters. I was like researching her lyrics and really trying to see what she was really saying again, understanding that like what she would perform would be very different than like the recorded lyrics that we have. And, and when she would, the things that she recorded for record companies would be like taken down or coded a bit, right? She was more radical in her tent shows than she was in her recordings. Because in her recordings, she couldn't like call white people out directly, but she could talk around it. And so um, that was my process for that. And also there's this Broadway album, One More Time, by this guy, uh, Vernal Bagneris, who did, uh, he's a well-known choreographer and composer, and so he'd done this Broadway recording. And um, I remember as a kid, my grandmother would play it for me, and we'd listen to it, and I'd put socks on my hands like gloves, and we'd dance around the living room to this kind of like, bro these Broadway covers of like, you know, old like vaudeville songs and, Be and Bessie songs, and so that was my way in. I drank gin for a time to try to like, because like, like, that was her drink, so I thought maybe if I, I like whiskey's my drink, but she drinks gin, so I said maybe I'll switch to gin, to gin and see if that puts me in a different mood or a headspace. Um, yeah, and then for Mudbound, it was more like, you know, interrogating my own personal history, and I thought of things I didn't ask my grandfathers, like one went to Korea, one went to World War II, and so it was kind of trying to get into my grandmother's psyche and her journals and her memories and injecting that into the script, like shamelessly injecting that experience into this and that being the thing I really wanted to talk about, you know, and kind of superimposing it on this material, so. So as we've got up to Mudbound, I just wanted to skip us slightly back to the notion of female sexuality that you mentioned mm -hmm. with Bessie, and it runs through everything. It runs through Pariah, and it runs through Mudbound, and obviously, as we mentioned in Bessie, it's not an overarching theme, but it's something that's present. Mm -hmm. And people are so scared, weirdly, in cinema to see female sexuality and see desire, mm -hmm. but it's something that we all have and that you know every human being experiences. Are you conscious that, that you've put that in, or you just if you've written that in just because it's a human experience? No, I'm conscious. I'm like aware of that. So one of the things from the book, so in the original script, there wasn't the moment of like, you know, Henry rejecting Laura sexually. Mm. But I wanted that because she has this line basically, it wasn't that great, but you know, it's the thing we had. It made me feel like a wife. So I like that because that's like a, a feminist thing to say, like mm. to say that I, I'm, I, who am supposed to be grateful for this last minute marriage, am not satisfied by this marriage and the sex isn't good, you know? And so, you know, saying that aloud was like a radical thing. And so I wanted that on, on camera where Henry bats her away and she's like, you know, it's not that good anyway, you know? And so, um, yeah, yeah. Um, I have a lot of questions at Mad Band, but I'm conscious that 
these guys have them as well. So if you do, please put your hand up and we'll get a microphone to you. Um, I'm supposed to ask a question about Mudbound? Mm -hmm. No. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of different shifts in archetypes during, like, in terms of the characters. How much um, room did you allow to, for actors to find something that wasn't in script? And in your writing process, how did you manage to maneuver all those arcs without them going over each other, if that makes sense? Yeah, so Mudbound, is, they're pretty much on book, you know, they're pretty much on script for most of this, you know? It's like, it's more performance, like the challenge is like throwing it away, like how do you not hear the script? And so like there's moments, for example, where I'll like sometimes like shout things out or like, or, or like, you know, add little motions. So for example, like when Jamie and Ronzel are in the truck and he's telling the story about, you know, pissing in his helmet, you know, I'm in the back of the truck and the, shout out the line, I thought I was hit. And so he says, I thought I was hit, you know, so to like, you know, activate that whole thing and make it funnier. So I'm open to like ads on set, but Mudbound, they're basically on book and, you know, it's in the delivery that kind of breaks it up and makes it not so reedy. And like, for example, like another example is like Ron Zell in the general store with the stare down with Pappy. You know, I was tempted to kind of throw away those last lines where he says, I was over there fighting your home safe and sound because I felt like, there's no way that he can say that to Pappy full in his face because we just rolled credits right now. Like, that'd be it, <laughs> you know? But um, so I was tempted to throw it away, and the actors fought for it. Jonathan Banks like, no, 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 I want him to say it. And Jay's like, no, no, I, I want to say it. So I changed the blocking. Like, okay, if you say that, you have to say it as you're walking away, and you have to say it under your breath. Because if you can give them that speech full to his face, you know, then that means that there's no problem here, <laughs> or you're going to be dead, you know. But so, you know, I changed the blocking then to make the words work. And there's t there's tons of voiceover that we recorded that we ended up throwing away, and then some voiceover I wrote during post because you know the things we threw away it felt like it was expositional, was saying what we're already seeing, and it wasn't as philosophical. And then things we added were things that were you know not necessarily things that we had planned for in production, but in the edit where I felt there were gaps and like. We weren't able to hand off things thematically where I wrote new monologues so that it became more thematic and not just chronological. So, does that kind of answer your question? Yeah, yeah. yeah. cool. Yeah. Um, or sometimes, even actually, I'll start out. So, for example, actually, like when the scene where Jamie and Pappy and Henry are drinking liquor, it's like his first night back. So, like, sometimes I'll give actors other dialogue or let them improv off book to get into it. So, like, I think I told Jamie, like, tell a dirty joke, you know? So, and that's the last thing she said. That's mm -hmm. the end of like a dirty joke. And then they get into they get into like the book, you know, or get get on script. So anything that kind of eases them, like a, if sometimes you need, you need like an entry ramp onto the material, and I'll let actors have that kind of entry ramp of, of improving. But then we get into the words, you know, and yeah. So. How did you create that intimacy between them? Because it's always you can tell it goes back to your first slide mm -hmm. of subtext, and so there's so much that's not said between them, but. It said, but it's because it's a level of com comfort between the actors. And how did you work with them to create that level of intimacy? So when we get to points like this, mm -hmm. they can rip off each other in that sense visually. Yeah, I would say, so my process with actors is not to rehearse the lines. Mm -hmm. It's just to pair them off in twos or threes and just kind of talk about the core of that relationship, like the feeling. So for Mudbound, I had um, Jonathan Banks, Garrett Helen, and Jason Clark just in my office and just like a father-son kind of like mosh pit. So, you know, for me, the core of that whole triangle was about admiration or respect. 
And so this is a son, a son, these are sons who want the respect and love of their father. And this is a father who just wants the respect and love of his sons. He doesn't wake up every morning and say, I'm going to be a villain today. He wakes up and says, you know, I, I want to be proud of my sons. And, you know, by picking at them, I'm going to make them right, you know. And so I had them just try to say something. So that was the thing that's already in the script. Already in the script, there's going to be this antagonism. So in the workshop, I wanted to do the opposite. Like, I wanted to find the love and I wanted to find the warmth. Like, say one thing good about your sons. Say one thing good about your father. So then underneath that, there's a little blush. Like, there's a little, you know, there's got to be a little warm blood, you know. You can't just be playing the straight thing. And, um, and luckily also, Garrett Hedlund and Jason Clark, they actually elected, instead of flying straight to set, they elected to like road trip down together so they could build that brotherly rapport. So they flew into Memphis, I think, and then drove down to New Orleans. And so they, you know, got matching back tattoos probably. But they, <laughs> they were able to like, you know, kind of ease into it and like build this kind of rapport and this ease and just look at each other and smell each other and be seen, you know, so, yeah. Uh, my question's on Mudbound as well. Actually, I saw it during the London Film Festival. I thought it was easily the best film there. I'm sure it's going to be nominated for some Oscars. But also, there, what I found it very interesting was there's four stories going on at the same time, and they're all gradually in, interlinking thr throughout, th throughout as the film went on and on, which I found quite interesting. Well, I have to say, so the interlinking story, so that's the conceit of the book. Oh. So the book is structured where each character has a chapter, each character speaks, and the book, that's how it's set up where each one hands off to the other. So that was one of the attractions to the material. And the, uh, in, in the edit, you know, it was something that we had to work hard to maintain or to make make sense, you know. And, and so how we edited the film is very different than, than how, you know, it was written and is very different than how we shot it. But um, the multiple points of view, I can't take credit for, like, that was Hillary's idea. And it's not, like, a new idea. Like, you know, Isabel Wilkerson does it in Warmth of Other Sons in nonfiction. And, um, yeah, so it's not a new conceit, but it's always hard because the risk is in letting everyone speak, you know, you hear no one. So, yeah. Was that the question or the comment? Yes, I, I didn't know that. I thought, actually, the script is written that way, so I hadn't read the book at all. Yeah. So I thought, well, that's very clever scripting there and integrating everything as the film goes on and on. Hmm? I wish you could take credit for it. No, that, that was Hillary's <laughs> okay. construct, yeah. yeah. Was it biased in a way that you changed, though? Yeah, I would say the first draft of the script was more weighted toward the McCallum family. And, you know, at the original script, the point of their connection was the little girl could sing, Lily Mae, the one who wants to be a stenographer, and, like, Laura plays the piano, so they have this, like, sweet piano singing session. And for me, I just wanted to make each of the characters connected beyond something that was circumstantial. So rather than... Parallels. Yeah, and rather than I've got this piano and your little girl can sing, I want it to be about, you know, these husbands connected by disinheritance, you know, hap literally has blood, bones, ancestors in the ground, but he can't take title to it. And Henry feels disinherited because Pappy's soul away was supposed to be his. And for the two wives, they're connected by, not just by motherhood, but by economic disempowerment. They both have husbands that tell them what to do or not to do with the money, and both wives are disobedient. They do what they want to do anyway. And, and then these two, war. exactly, and then the two sons are connected, Ronzel and Jamie, by PTSD before there's a name for it. So mm. I wanted to, so I, I definitely weighted this, the film more 50-50, so it's Jackson's and McCallum, so we see that each person is fighting on their own front, and it's not one kind of existing as or the other. Dee, first of all, thank you for an absolutely wonderful, wonderful lecture. Um, I wanted to just ask about um, structure of screenplays and how you deal with the cinematic element. There are some moments in Mudbound that are exquisitely detailed, like mm -hmm. the brother, um, uh, when his younger brother um, takes his fiancée for a dance. Mm -hmm. He simply um, readjusts a piece of cloth on the or her, her top. 
do you write that? Or, or is that an improvised moment? Because it, it's so exquisitely detailed and tells us so much about his vulnerability and his inability to, as you say at the beginning, to express that. It's the three degrees. Mm -hmm. How much of this um, cinematic element, the descriptive element, is in the script and how much is a development through the editing, etc.? Thank you for noticing that. <laughs> You're the only person who noticed that he touches the scar. Thank it's a wonderful you. moment. Yeah, exactly. So, so that was a moment I found on set. So it was like, you know, she leaves and leaves her scarf. And so, you know, it's like that scarf is Laura. Like, you're loving Laura. You're giving her this touch. And, you know, I just saw it on set and prompted the actor to do it. So, like, this care for this scarf is him caretaking for his wife and trying to not feel her absence. Like, exactly that. Yeah. So I think definitely as a director, you find those things on set. And then there's other things that are scripted. So, for example, in, like, the first kind of talks with producers, in addition to, like, scenes I wanted to write, I wrote, like, imagery I wanted to write. Like, Laura chewing calluses off her hands, mm -hmm. child eating dirt. Mm -hmm kids playing soldier, you know, so these are images that weren't necessarily in the script, but they're images that I wanted to shoot to be a part of the world, to like set a tone, even like um, the uh, dead things, like the dead things, I don't know if it's in the script, but it's like, I knew I wanted I, to bring forth Laura's voiceover of like, you know, um, basically how, about country violence, and so we're shooting dead things to kind of activate that, but yeah, but moments like that, that's exactly the thing, I can't love Laura, so I'm going to love the scarf that she had on, and Gimho Baxter, like, he gave her that scarf for your anniversary. So he's, like, securing himself also, like, okay, not to worry. Like, we're still here. So, yeah, exactly that. Thank you for, you're the first person that noticed that and got that. Thank you. I feel vindicated. Thank you. <laughs> in Mudvan, achieving the authenticity in those voiceovers, um, you had a special way of kind of recording those and working with the actors to achieve that so they kind of retain truth and how did you kind of work with them for their voiceovers so so i wanted them so i had them record their voiceovers on set which every sound technician will tell you not to do because they'll say it's dirty you'll have unwanted you know room tone blah 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 but i wanted to record the voiceovers on set because the actors are still in costume they're still sweaty they're still dirty they still hurt and they're still they, they're fresh from the emotion that they just kind of experienced and so I wanted to record their voiceovers in that state versus letting them shower, go home, and come back six months later and do it in a sound booth where they're going to be distanced from the moment and trying to summon a feeling. You know, it'd feel contrived. And um, a credit to our sound recorders, Pud Kuzak, she got us this amazingly clear sound where, you know, we used mostly what we shot on set. There are very few replacements. And... Um, I think it's a service to the actors to like get their best performance, and so to me, I'm failing them if I'm not putting them in putting them in a situation to give their best performance. And so, um, you know, taking the five minutes after a scene or two minutes after a scene to record something, or even going to like a rental car parked outside and give it is like worth the five minutes of holding the work, or is worth the three minutes to run to the car and do it, just because it allows them to give their best. You know, so. Hi, thank you for the lecture and your amazing work. Um, I've got a question on genre, um, because it sounds like you've written across quite a few genres, from crime, detective, um, you know, you've got um, historical epic dramas and very family-based dramas. Um, and you also did a Philip K. Dick um, uh, piece for TV as well. So there's quite a range. Is there any particular genre that you find yourself most at home to or coming back to or any difficulties writing in a particular genre or style? No, I'm always, I'm always chasing story and characters. And like, I'm actually drawn to sci-fi. So again, I've been trying to do sci-fi for a while. And so 
a little backstory of how that came to be was I wrote an adaptation of um, the Philip K. Dick book, Martian Time Slip. So I was friendly with Issa Hackett. It was like, yes, you can have this book and do adaptation like on spec. And so, you know, they wanted some rewrites, but at the same time, Bessie came through. So I had to like leave that and go do Bessie. But we stayed friendly, you know, throughout the process. And she was like, hey, we're doing this anthology. Do you want an adapted episode? And I was like, of course, you know. So for me, like sci-fi has been the thing I've always wanted to get to because I feel like you can actually say more and you can be more direct because people don't realize what they're looking at quite, you know. So <laughs> you can actually be more on the nose in a weird way with sci-fi. And also sci-fi, I think, is more dense or intense maybe because it's like world, world creation. So coming up with the logic of a world or coming up with the logic, of, the logic of like a language, like the costumes, how people speak, the idioms, like, you know, you have to almost invent a whole new vocabulary and invent, you know, you have to invent, it's like world, world creation. So like it's what I'm really most excited by and want to get into. But for me, like I'm chasing characters and ideas no matter what genre they fall into. I'll probably never do a romance. That's the one genre I can't stand, but like, yeah, other than that, yeah. Watch me do a romance next year. <laughs> Is that the key, do you think, to have, having long, I can never say the word, longevity um, to writing in terms of not being genre specific and just writing stories about people that you want to write them to and then place them in scenarios like a sci-fi situation? Is that what you've always stood by in terms of picking what you want to work on? Yeah, so I think I've like I've probably compromised a couple of times, right? When I first started out, I was like, I'm an auteur. I only want to do only my original stuff, no adaptations, you know? And so then, of course, and I compromised. So it's like, okay, well, I will do adaptations, but only about stuff that I love. And like, I thought that, you know, for me, I've always wanted to work across like features and TV, so that wasn't a thing. But I think, you know, in chasing like characters and stories that I'm interested in, that means I'll cross genres, you know? And that means that I will cross like, I, I want to get back to more original stuff, so after this, I'm going to do a Joan Didion adaptation with Cassian, but after this, I want to get back to solely like original stuff and just like world creation. But um, yeah, I, th I, think it's in, I think I've had to be choosy. Like I, don't, I never want to be a director for hire. I didn't want to be just like, you know, on loan to different studios directing someone else's idea. Like if I fail, I want to fail on my own ideas, you know? So I'd rather try to put forward the thing I want to do or put forward the idea I have. And, you know, time is short. Like, each film mm. eats, like, three years of your life. So I feel like the clock is ticking. And so I just want to, you know, from now on, like, if I'm going to go out, like, go out, you know, trying to do my own stuff. So, yeah, we'll see. We've got time for two more questions. Hi, I'm B. Manzini. Good to see you again, Dee. We met at the um, after party for the premiere of Mudbound, which is a segue into my question, actually, mm -hmm. because everybody that I spoke to was like, Dee is amazing to work with. She's absolutely brilliant. And I wondered, as a director, if you had a particular process or you had rituals that you used to kind of build that trust and camaraderie? So... Um I guess, yeah, I just like to keep it more conversational. And I guess in the same way I work with actors in small pairings, I work with the department heads in small pairings. Like, I'm not, I don't enjoy the big conference table meetings, you know, you know, which you have to do with the AD a couple of times. But I don't enjoy, I don't feel that the creative process is best served there. You know, I feel like it's in one-on-ones. If I'm talking to the production designer, you know, yeah, the cinematographer needs to know that, but like later, like I like to let the person, I like to complete the thought or complete the idea or, we're gonna go through three things that don't work before we get to the thing that does work, and that doesn't necessarily need to happen in front of the other department head, you know, because then 
doesn't feel safe or people shut down or then people are performing for each other, you know. So I think in that same way I like to work singly with people, you know, versus like, you know, in a big group. So it's like collaboration one by one in a weird way mm-hmm. or, or, you know, in groups that feel like, you know, more intimate where things can bounce and grow without, you know, getting cut off, without being like figured out. And um, yeah, and just kind of like very personal, like sharing stuff, like filtering stuff, like instead of like dumping a big glut, like here's all my references, like slowly, like here's some songs that sound like the world and here's some images that feel like the world or here's a passage from a poem or here's a thing. So everyone feels like they're getting like this personal, like little love note from me and then they get inspired, like, you know, like text, email, like three o'clock in the morning, like I saw this passage or so, you know, so I like to work in that way. So it feels like it's like the steady drip of kind of like inspiration versus like this kind of formalized round table thing, you know, Knights of the Round Table thing. And um, yeah, so maybe that. And then I was thinking back to the question about writing process, like mm. one of the things I do too, like in the writing of it, you know, so I feel like, you know, you kind of vomit up everything on a bunch of index cards, not necessarily in order, but not just like scenes, but like ideas or sentences, you know, there's things that you know you want in there, but you don't know like where they go yet. And then when you start to kind of figure out those sentences and imagery, arrange them in kind of arcs by act. And in writing it, like I don't write in sequence. I write the two scenes I'm most interested, you know, in that day. And for rewrite, so for this thing, you know, I started off the page. I started writing, like, what, what are the things that are not there? What are the scenes like that are not there? And so that was an easier way to work back into how to incorporate it into the scripts. Because sometimes you start on the page, you feel locked in. Well, this has to happen because it connects to this, and then that connects to that. But if you start off the page, then you're kind of freed of that and like, you know, you're writing longhand and so you're not bound to the, the connections and you can f- figure out how to relink things. So, um, yeah. Thank I think, you. Thanks. I think Sean Baker may have touched on this in his lecture the other night, but the idea of the rewrite and writing and that his script, and perhaps it seems similar to you, that it's rewritten mm-hmm. at least three times. It's writ- rewritten when you put it together. It's rewritten when you direct it mm-hmm. and then it's rewritten when you edit in the it, edit yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Um, is that? Yeah, that's an axiom. That's a common saying. Yeah, mm-hmm. totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I, and, and I agree with that, and you have to stay open to that. Yeah, I think like when you're in production, you can't be married to the words. If the actor wants to add something, if you need a kind of entry ramp or exit ramp, then you got to allow for that because it'll give it a naturalism. Or, and then in the, and then in the um, edit room, you know, you got to kill your darlings. You can't like have a sentence just because it's literary or cool. Like, is it character revealing, or is it moving the plot forward, or is it setting a tone? And if not, you know, you have to kind of kill it. So then it's rewritten again, and even even in terms of sequencing, it's rewritten in terms of what best kind of gives the narrative propulsion. So totally, yeah. Um, and if we can quickly touch on what if, what if you know that you're doing next, the next project that you've got in the pipeline. Yeah, so the next is going to be um, about the failure to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment in the United States. So I'm teaming up with Carrie Mulligan again. It's called An Uncivil War. And so we're casting that now. And then I'm going to do um, The Last Thing You Wanted with Cassie and a Joan Didion adaptation, which is exciting. And so again, right, it's like a, it's on the surface, it's like an international spy thriller. But underneath, it's really about what happens when daughters trust their fathers blindly, you know? You die. So, um, <laughs> and then, um, and then the next thing I want to do, I really want to get away and do this original sci-fi thing. I've been just been gestating about, you know, where kind of like the environmental crisis meets, you know, um, the economic crisis. So, yeah. A lot going on. Yeah. Um, well, all the best with my band. Oh, and Jason Bloom. We're gonna do a horror. How can I forget? Like me and Sarah <laughs> are like gonna write a horror story about what it means to be, you know, black lesbians living in like an all-white town. I want to see that. It's terrifying. Um, Thank you very much, Deary. Thank you so much.